That's a good-looking bunch of kids, huh? All right. Well, always when we have the kids and we get to see all of them in front of us at the same time, uh, my heart goes out to all of you who work with Team Kid. And so if, if you're at our church and you work with the Team Kid group, uh, a big thank you. I know I would uh, name some names, but I know you guys have added to your number with helpers with the amount of kids that you've had. So uh, for everybody who helps out with anything having to do with our children, uh, thank you very much for uh, giving of your time. Uh, it's obvious that um, a lot of neat things are going on with the amount of kids that we have. So thank you. Um, now we are on to the book of Daniel. So if you have your copy of God's word, if you would open up to the book of Daniel, we will get started this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for all of the children that you've blessed us with. God, I pray that as we, uh, continue to worship you through the preaching of the word, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open. Lord, I pray that we would, uh, glean all sorts of magnificent things from your word. And God, I pray that you would uh, soften our hearts so that we could be made more like your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would gain all sorts of encouragement uh, from Daniel and his three friends. And Lord, I pray that we would, uh, as a church, just continually grow uh, more and more, all for your glory and your honor. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are at the last of the major prophets. We're at the last of the second group of prophets that we've been studying. Uh, as you know, we started out uh, several months ago in the book of Genesis, and we've been working our way all the way through the Bible, and we are in the book of Daniel. So we have covered uh, all sorts of ground, and when we finish up with Daniel, I told you that there's three types of prophets. There's pre-exile prophets, there's exile prophets, and then there's post-exile prophets. Daniel is the last of the second group of prophets. And so after this week, we will only have three prophets left before we get into the New Testament. Amen? We could spend longer. We could spend longer. No? No? Okay. All right. So here we go. So we're going to jump into the book of Daniel. And what you need to know up to this point is that if you are confused at anything that we talk about, all of the background information to get you to the book of Daniel is online on our church website. So you could catch up with anything that you need clearing up on. But so far, uh, God creates man and woman and they sin. And God has been on a plan ever since Genesis 3.15 to redeem mankind. And so along comes Genesis chapter 12 and God says, Abraham, I choose you and through the, and through you I'm gonna draw the nations of the world back to myself. And so ever since Genesis 12, God has been on a mission to draw the world back to himself through Abraham. And you have seen through Moses and all of these other people who are part of Abraham's lineage that God is at work drawing the people back together. Well, he takes his people and he tells Abraham, I'm going to give you land, seed, and a blessing. And through those three things, that those are the tools that I'm going to use to gain the world. And so the people are in the promised land and they just don't do what they're supposed to do. And then God has to uh, remove them from the promised land and take them into exile. And so the Assyrians come in and the Assyrians attack Israel and carry Israel away. And then the Babylonians come in and they attack Judah and they carry Judah away. And so we learned a few weeks ago that the faithful group of Israelites, the faithful people from Judah, all surrendered into captivity and were not killed. And so the book of Ezekiel and Daniel are written to those faithful people 
who surrendered into captivity, and now they're being held uh, as exiles in a land that's not their own. And so they don't know everything that's going on in the homeland unless God sends a prophet their way. And so that's what God did through the prophet Ezekiel. He sent Ezekiel to the exiles that were in Babylon, and he's telling them what's going on. And now God is using the prophet Daniel to tell them what's going on. Daniel and Ezekiel, two very, very similar books. Ezekiel is telling the people what's going to happen spiritually. Daniel comes along and he tells the people what's going to happen politically. It's much easier to understand Daniel if you've been reading along than it is Ezekiel. And so here we pick up in the book of Daniel. To sum up Daniel, I'll tell you that Daniel has several visions and the outcome of his visions are that there's several nations, there's several political empires that are going to follow. He says that there's, he sees a statue and he says that right now the Babylonians are in charge. Pretty soon the Medes and the Persians are going to come and take over. Then Greece is going to arise and take over. And then Rome is going to take over. And so I've summed up the latter half of Daniel so we don't have to go through it. But I want you to, to get that that's what Daniel's telling the people. And then we'll find that he says on top of all of those things, there's one more little caveat that Daniel shares with us that is incredibly encouraging. But the main thing that we're going to do today is I want to not tell you all of the stories that are in Daniel, but I want us to go through the reaction to all of these stories that you already know. And so let's take off in Daniel chapter 1 verse 3. It says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the royal nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court, and he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. And so King Nebuchadnezzar has taken these men, all of these captives, and he says, pick out the handsome smart ones and I want them to serve the king's court. And so Daniel gets picked. Then it says in verse 8, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should... He see your face looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age. Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azira, please test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So here you have the scene has been set that Daniel is now in captivity. These other three people who you know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all four of these guys are in captivity together and they have been set apart to serve the king as the king's council. And, and they're actually being trained up to be governors over Israel 
because Nebuchadnezzar has captured all of Israel. So he's going to train up and, uh, and have these leaders kind of in his pocket and put them back in place. So what happens is that the king has his food. He's given it to the people. And Daniel and his three buddies, the food that the king is serving is in opposition to his religion. Remember the book of Leviticus, book of Deuteronomy? You've got to kill food a certain way in order to eat it. And you can't just eat any food. And so here he has this lush diet prepared for him by the king. And Daniel says, sorry guys, I can't eat it. And the commander of, the, of all the people says, well, you've, you've got to eat it. If you start looking bad, the king is going to have my head. And Daniel says, well, test us for 10 days and just serve us what we're able to eat and water. And if we look bad, then we'll do what you want us to do. But at least let us do what we have to do in order to serve our God. And so here's the thing. It would be very easy. And Daniel at this time is a teenager. He's a youth. And so this is not just a, a grown man with convictions of steel, but these are like four teenagers who are gone into captivity. And they stand firm and they realize that the luxuries that are being offered to them by their religion, they are not able to take part. A lot of times we think, okay, all of the dirtier things as Christians were not able to take part in. When was the last time that you had convictions over having something for yourself that was too nice? Anybody ever gone there? Anybody ever prayed about a particular purchase? Anybody prayed about places that they wanted to go and ever asked themselves if that was in opposition to what God was calling them to do? That's not a place we like to go a lot. But it's something worth thinking about. And so Daniel, as a teenager, realizes that there are some things that he is not able to do. And so when Daniel takes his stand, Daniel, or excuse me, God gives him favor in the sight of all the people. Now, what happens is that Daniel rises to a place of favor, and Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 has a dream. And so Nebuchadnezzar, I never had a whole lot of respect for Nebuchadnezzar because of uh, the way that he always made the people bow down to the statue. And I always thought of Nebuchadnezzar as somewhat of a foolish guy. But as I was reading Daniel in preparation for this, I realized that Nebuchadnezzar is a pretty clever fella and incredibly intelligent. Because Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and it upsets him. And Nebuchadnezzar says, all right, gather all of the wise men, all of the satraps, all of these people, and I want you to interpret my dream. And they say, oh, king, live forever. What was your dream? And he says, oh, no. Listen to what he says. It says in verse 7, they answered a second time and said, let the king, this is chapter 2, verse 7, let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. This is how you know that this Nebuchadnezzar is no fool. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, uh-uh, no, sir, fellas, you guys are a bunch of liars and you'll tell me whatever I want to hear. You'll stick together. You tell me the dream first. Then you tell me what it means. Listen to what they say. Verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not. Listen to this. These are pagan people. These are the Babylonians, a ruthless group of people. They say there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer or Chaldean. 
Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. And so you think, <laughs> all right, this is when it's going to get good. The, the Babylonians have just said, no way this can happen. In the history of the Chaldeans, no king has ever asked such a ridiculous thing of the people. There's nobody that could do it, and only God could do it, but he doesn't dwell here with us. Enter Daniel. Now you flip over, maybe, to chapter 2, verse 26. So he ends up telling the people, listen. I want you to gather all of the fortune tellers, all of the satraps, all of the wise men from Babylon, and I want you to kill them all. He says, if you can't do this thing that I'm asking you to do, I want you to rip each of them limb from limb. It's a pretty good idea, right? Can't give me what I want as the ruler? Kill them all. And so now you come to verse 26. And it says, the king said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? 27, Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men nor conjurers, magicians nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. So Daniel says, nobody can do it. Verse 28, however, this is when it gets good. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. And then he interprets the dream to him. And he says that God is the one who reveals the mysteries. Verse 30. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man. Daniel says, listen, it's not because of me. It's not because I'm wise that this has been revealed. But this has been this purpose. This is the middle of verse 30. But for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. And then... In verse 47, the king has this epiphany. And he says, the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. And so the cool thing about all of this is that Babylon is not a nation that is known for its worship of God. Babylon is a pagan nation that's worshiping all sorts of other idols and the Israelite people are in captivity under a pagan king and they're being oppressed. But what does God do? God elevates one of his own to a place of stature and he intervenes on behalf of the king. And now the king, a pagan king, realizes that the God that Daniel serves is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. How much more encouragement would you like if you're a captive in a foreign land than for the ruler of that land to realize how great of a God that you serve. And it keeps going. You have the story over in chapter 3. You have the story of the, the men that we call Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar creates this big statue. And he says, when the, when the bagpipes and all these other instruments play, you're to bow down and worship the, worship the image. And you know the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't do it. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, hold the phone. He says, guys, come here. He says, I'm going to give you one more chance. When you hear the music, bow down and worship. And listen to what these teenagers say. This is chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. 
If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And so here's these three teenagers. And they say, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't have to give you an answer because our, ki- our, our king is able to deliver us from the fire. Right? And so these three teenagers, they have faith. They don't have to, uh, they don't have to bow down to the image that they are forced to worship. They would rather face death than worship the image because they believe that their God is able to deliver them from the king. And then listen to what they say. It gets even better. Verse 18. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And so you got three pesky teenagers that won't do what the king wants them to do. And they say, King, we would rather die serving our God than ever bow down to your God. And may I say that we need a series of Daniels and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's that will take a stand for God and not bow down to anything else that would rather face death than, than, than violate the convictions that they have. We need to be just like these teenagers with rock-hard convictions. Amen? People who would rather see death than violate the commandments of God. And brothers and sisters... We may be much closer than you would ever think. So much so that in the last deacons meeting, we made a, uh, not a resolution, but we voted as the deacons to pass a, uh, to put a church policy in place that deals with marriage and all sorts of other things. Because we believe that the time is coming where people will be put in prison for not agreeing with other people's views on marriage. And that's one area that we believe is incredibly holy and we will not compromise as the body of Christ when it comes to marriage. And so we've put procedures and policies in place so that they can't come in here, namely, and arrest me for not doing sort of wedding that is in opposition to our convictions. Because I think that you're going to see the day coming quicker and quicker where people are more and more and more persecuted for the things that they believe. And even if the state, listen to this, even if the state says, I don't care what your policy is, you have to do this. I, this is not us, this is me. I want to be the sort of Christian who stands on my convictions, even if it means going to jail and my wife raising our kids by herself. I would rather my wife sit with my kids at the dinner table and talk about how awesome of a man dad is, even though he's not here and he's in jail, because he's a man who wouldn't compromise on his convictions. Amen? I would rather be an absent father than be a coward. And that's a tough pill to swallow, and that's a decision that many, many of you men may have to make before you die. I thought the same thing about if somebody came storming in the back door of the church and wanted to shoot anybody who stood for Christ, my prayer is that you and I both would stand for Christ and die for him rather than going on about the rest of our lives as cowards. Amen? You're going to see this pointed out at the end of the book of Daniel. And so the men, they don't 
compromise. They stand on their convictions. Then you get over to verse 28. And it says, Nebuchadnezzar responded. This is after the men get thrown into the fire and they don't burn up. Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I, Nebuchadnezzar, king of a pagan nation, make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. What if we were a people who lived our lives according to convictions and the world around us had to make a decree that nobody say anything negative about our God because they knew that our God was the only God and he was the one true God and he's the only one that could deliver in this way. What if we were a people who lived our lives in such a fashion? We wouldn't have to argue about all the trivial things that we argue about in politics because people would know that we are godly people who live our lives a certain way and the evidence of our lives speaks to there's a God who delivers us and you can't argue against it. But you've got to figure out what your convictions are and be willing to die for them before people will take you serious. You can say you have convictions all day long But when it starts to get hot, do you back out or do you stand firm? Hopefully, you're the type of person that stands firm. Now, there's more and more that goes on. Uh, The king has another vision. Nebuchadnezzar has a vision. And this vision is not near as pleasant as the other vision. The other vision was, was a pretty good thing for Nebuchadnezzar. This vision is bad. He has a vision, and this is chapter 4. I'm over in verse 24. He has a vision. He sees a few animals. Excuse me. He sees a tree and the tree is big and beautiful. Then the tree gets cut down and he calls in Daniel to interpret the dream. And so this is what Daniel says in verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the most high, which has come upon my Lord, the king. Earlier, after he knew that he was going to have to interpret the dream, Daniel said, O king, he said, O king, this that this vision had to do with someone else other than you. And Nebuchadnezzar, knowing who Daniel was, said, listen, don't worry about it. Tell me the truth. And then he says, this is the interpretation, verse 25, that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beast of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And it was... And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree for your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. And so Daniel, in a nutshell, has told the king that he's going to end up being mad and he's going to live out uh, a period of time like a cattle. He's going to eat grass and he's going to live outside under the dew. And this is a bad thing for you to have to stand before a ruler and tell him. So when the king, who has the ability to cut your head off, Johnny on the spot, asks you to interpret the vision, Daniel is the type of man who actually interprets what the vision says. And then Daniel goes a step beyond that, and he says, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you, verse verse 27. Break away now from your sins 
by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. And so listen to what Daniel does. Daniel doesn't play the role of a coward and say, king, and make up a bunch of other stuff. Daniel tells the king exactly what God wants him to hear. Daniel is not the sort of man that we would describe as someone who is tickling your ears, telling you whatever you want to hear. There are preachers out there all over the place. And you can go to their giant churches and they will tell you whatever you want to hear so that you leave upbeat and encouraged. They will. This isn't one of them in case you're visiting. We need to be the sort of people who want to hear what it is that God wants us to have. And when he wants us to be encouraged, we get encouraged. And when he wants us to repent of our sins, we repent of our sins. And so Daniel just doesn't say, hey, buddy, the king, just go on living life however you want to and do whatever it is that you want to do. Daniel says, no, you need to break away from your sins. Have you ever stood in front of somebody who has the power to chop your head off and told him, brother, you need to repent of your sins? Would you have the courage to do that if that's the lot that God had for you? Or would you rather keep your head and your job and tell the king whatever he wanted to hear? It's a tough thing to think about sometimes. Anyways, so Daniel, this incredible man of God. And now listen to what Nebuchadnezzar has to say. This is in verse 34. He says, but at the end of that period, this is at the end of him going about life like a, like a, like a cow in the field. He says, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and my splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways are just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. And so get this picture. The king of Babylon is worshiping God because of the courage of four teenagers. You getting that? The, the world power of the day is worshiping God and has made a rule that no one is able to speak poorly of God because of the courage of four teenagers. There's roughly 120 of us in here right now. How would the world be different if all 120 of us had the same courage that those four teenagers had? You get, you get midway through the book of Acts, and the, the ruler of the Roman world looks at the apostles, and they come to him with this charge. They come to the ruler, and they say, look at these 12 untrained men. They've turned the world upside down. What are we going to do with What are we going to do with them? What if we had 120 people with rock-solid convictions and they held fast to those convictions even if it meant death, even if it meant loss of job, even if it meant prison? 
How would we as a church be different? Do you think that we would look any different? Do you think the things that we were about doing, would? do you think that we would choose to do different things? Valid questions, huh? Now, you keep going in the book of Daniel, and the, the Daniel keeps doing difficult thing after difficult thing after difficult thing. Daniel ends up getting thrown into the lion's den. Uh, what happens is that Babylon is captured by the Medes and the Persians. Shortly after the Medes and the Persians take over, the king throws Daniel into the lion's den, and he doesn't want to. The king ends up having just as much faith as Daniel, telling Daniel in chapter 6, verse 16, that God is going to deliver him. And so the, the book goes on and on and on, and there's all sorts of neat things going. But for the sake of time, go over to chapter 7. And this is a vision that Daniel has. And I already told you that throughout the course of Daniel, Daniel has seen, he's told the king four different, um, uh, four different political parties that are going to take over. And this is, this is really interesting. In chapter 7, verse 13, he says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so Daniel has already had this vision of the statue. There's gold, silver, iron, bronze, and the statue gets delivered. Excuse me. The statue gets destroyed. Now, this statue that's representative of those political kingdoms gets destroyed by a small rock that comes out of a mountain. It, it sounds a lot like one of the stones that an altar would be cut out. If you remember, an altar had to be made of stones that were not cut by human hands. And so out of the mountain comes this stone, which wasn't cut by human hands, and it crushes all of those other pieces of the statue that represent nations. And you learn that it's this son of man who's going to reign forever and his kingdom is not going to be destroyed. And so one of the over, overwhelming principles of the book of Daniel politically is that there are, the, there are political things that must happen. But in the end, exile, in the end, person who is not in the promised land where they're supposed to be, in the end, we win. That God has every single thing under control. And then listen in verse 27. He says, this is verse 27 of chapter 7. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. That word serve is the exact same word that's used in other places as worship. And so what's going to happen is that all of the glory and all of the dominion of all of the kingdoms of the earth are going to be taken by the Son of Man. He's going to get it all. And then the Son of Man is going to turn around and he's going to give them to you and I who are his saints. That is incredibly good news if you're a captive in Babylon at this time. And so last but not least, there's a ton of things that we could cover. But I want you to see in chapter 9, verse 25. This is that Daniel has, in the beginning of chapter 9, Daniel has been reading the book of Deuteronomy. He's been reading the book of Jeremiah. He's kind of put the two together and he realizes that the, that the Israelites are only supposed to stay in captivity for a short amount of time. And he realizes that that time is up and it's time for them to go. And so at the end of that, at the end of him praying and repenting on behalf of the nation, 
he gets an answer to his prophecy. And verse 25 says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. And so Daniel gets this vision, gets this answer to his prayer, in the way, in, by means of prophecy, that in the end of 62 weeks, the Messiah is going to be cut off. Remember, Isaiah has been telling you all about this Messiah that was going to come. Ezekiel's been telling you about this Davidic king that's going to reign over everything. Well, Daniel gets a timeline. And God tells Daniel that at the end of 62 weeks, the Messiah is going to be cut off. Now, why would God tell Daniel when the Messiah is going to be cut off, not when the Messiah is going to come? Because it doesn't matter when the Messiah comes and how long he stays. All of the work that the Messiah does, everything that's of a huge value, is accomplished when the Messiah is cut off. Remember the suffering servant from Isaiah? That the suffering servant has to be cut off and then he gains all of these things? Well, Christ has to come and he has to be cut off at a certain point, And that's when he gains all of the victory and honor and all of those other things. And so have you ever wondered why wise men show up at Jesus' birth? Why wise men from the east show up and they show up about three years late from the birth of Jesus? Probably... Because Daniel taught the wise men this prophecy. That they knew that the Messiah was going to be cut off at this time. And they could do the math and figure out when the Messiah was going to cut off. So they show up 30 years before that. Assuming that the Messiah has already been born. And they see some sort of star in the east and they follow it. And so this passage is why the wise men from the east show up at Jesus' birth. Pretty interesting. That Daniel's legacy lives on even though he's gone. Last, I told you that earlier, last but not least, I want you to see this. I promise we're finishing. Daniel chapter 11. After Daniel shares about all of these political things that are going to take place, he talks about a person who's going to be very much like the Antichrist. Now, the Antichrist is going to come midway through the tribulation, and he is going to deceive the whole world, and he is going to want to be worshipped as God. And so this Antichrist, before he, uh, before he demands people worship him as God, he is going to come in in a very cunning way, and he's going to be a world power, and the whole world is going to be deceived by him. This is guaranteed to you in Scripture. And listen to this. This is uh, of someone else who's going to be very much like the Antichrist. Chapter 11, verse 32. By smooth words, he will turn the godless, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. You get that? I'm going to read that one more time. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength. And take action. In chapter 11 of Hebrews, you learn that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it, men of old gained approval. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And then you learn about all these heroes of the faith, all of these heroes of the faith. And tucked away in the heroes of the faith, you have... 
in verse 33, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lion, and quenched the power of fire. And you have these four teenagers tucked away in what we call the heroes of the faith because they were men of God who did not get sucked into godlessness, but they took a stand and they kept the faith. And I pray that as we finish up with the book of Daniel, I hope that you've kind of understood the flow of the book, but I hope you've also gotten some encouragement from these guys who take a stand and God looks out for them. And they are encouraged that even if God doesn't look out for them, even if they have to go into the furnace, that God is still worth taking a stand for. And I hope that as you go throughout your week, that you would have the same sort of attitude as you go about life and your daily job, that you are going to take a stand for Christ, even if it costs everything you have. Amen? Let's go Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we thank you that you have given us example after example after example of men who were not cowards, but men who took a stand for the faith even if it meant facing life, facing the end of life. God, I pray for the men of our church. I pray for the women of our church that they would be men and women, that we would be men and women who will take a stand for you regardless of the cost. Lord, I pray for our teenagers. I pray that you would strengthen them. I pray that they would take a stand in our school system for you. And God, I pray that as others look at our lives, as others... uh, take inventory of the things that are important to us. I pray that they would see that our relationship with you is the most important thing that we have in our life and that, God, we are willing to give up absolutely anything else in order to keep it and in order to stand for our convictions. God, I pray that you would, uh, through your Holy Spirit, convict us of those convictions. And, God, I pray that if there's anyone here who has never come to the understanding that you are worth forsaking everything else in this world for. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they put their faith in Jesus Christ to save them of their sins and they realize all of the great things that you have to offer. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you would stand with us for our hymn of invitation. Well, it was a joy worshiping the Lord with you today. I hope that that you will give some some thought to everything we talked about throughout the week. I want to catch you up on uh, one thing. Uh, Ron and Pam Miller are uh, towards the Duke area. They have a grandson, Graham, uh, who has been having some difficulties. And Graham has been in the hospital for about two weeks now, having some heart and lung difficulties. So remember to pray for Ron and Pam this week uh, and their uh, daughter and son-in-law also. Uh, it's got to be exhausting uh, spending that much time in the hospital with a little one. So, uh, you know, if you get a chance, call and encourage them. Uh, just let them know we're thinking about them. I know that Pam and uh, her daughter are kind of keeping a, a good cycle, uh, keeping up with the twins that have just been born and the other babies. So uh, our heart goes out to them. And, uh, Ed, I'm going to ask you to close us in prayer in just a minute. If you would pray for them when you close us in prayer. But uh, last but not least, told you that two or three times today. Uh, don't forget to read your bulletin again. Uh, if I was confusing uh, about the deacon announcement that I made, uh, it's, it's clear in the bulletin uh, if you look at it. We accidentally asked you for six names, and uh, we only meant to ask for three. And so some of you, when you voted, voted for six people instead of just three. And so the way that we're going to do things in the in the uh, this next ballot is that we're only going to ask you for three names uh, as opposed to trying to figure out which three you meant. 
And if that doesn't make any sense, uh, call me, please. <laughs> Sound good? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Brother Ed closes in prayer.